Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Joining us for the Third Coast Conference this year in Chicago? Well, you might want to come a day early, because on November 8th, we bring you ReSound Live at Talia Hall. Starring Phoebe Judge, the neo-futurists, Adriana Cardona, and me, Gwen Maxi, all performing original works, from the previously unspoken to the deliciously unexpected. ReSound Live will be part of our special two-week fest in Chicago, which will also include Love and Radio, Code Switch, and Reveal, live on stage. To get tickets and see the entire fest lineup, go to thefestchicago.org. That's thefestchicago.org. We will see you there. Hi there. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On the show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Having a really great editor can be a true luxury. But what do you do when you're stuck with an editor whose input isn't helping, or you have no editor at all? At the 2008 Third Coast Conference, Deborah George, who is now a senior editor at Reveal, gave her advice on how to effectively work with the editor you've been dealt, and, if need be, how to become your own editor. Here is Just Listen to Yourself. Good morning. Okay, well, by way of introduction, very, very simply, I have been, in public radio, I have been a reporter, I've been a producer, and an editor um, for the past at least 15 years. I have been more of an editor than anything else. And and I just want to say that I love editing. Um, And... These are some ideas that I've been thinking about for a long time, even before I became an editor. And when I first started uh, freelancing for NPR, there was a wonderful show called uh, NPR Journal. And I don't know if anybody remembers it. Anybody remember NPR Journal? It goes way, way, way back. It was a half an hour show, and even beginners could uh, pitch stories and get a half an hour on the network, uh, and uh, and and I used to do things regularly for that show. And uh, the editor was a very very nice guy uh, named John Weber, who would well actually he wasn't the editor he was the uh, senior producer, and he would say 
I'd pitch him a story and he would say, just don't embarrass me. <laughs> and then that's all I would hear from him until I would come back with my piece. And then he'd listen to it and he'd go, oh, okay. And maybe he'd say, you know, you've got to, you know, do this or do that. But it was very minimal. It maybe took 20 minutes, 20 minute session with him. So uh, one of the early stories that I did, um, of course, I, I, I was trying to be funny, which is always a really hard thing anyway, but I didn't know how hard it was. But it was a, uh, it was a half an hour on kitsch, all kinds of definitions of kitsch. And, and, and I just went way overboard with sounds, and, I, and so I had various people, including Dwight McDonald, if any of you know who he was, is, um, talking about kitsch. And I had, oh, I had Polish kitsch and black kitsch and hippie kitsch and uh, birds as a kitsch icon and all, all kinds of little, you know, talking to people who collected salt and pepper shakers. So I, I gathered all my material, had a lot of fun gathering the material, and then sat down and spent weeks moving pieces of tape around and writing it and rewriting it and masticating it and chewing it and, and, and feeling just in a complete fog uh, and just spending way, way, way too much time. And I'm sure that everybody here has had that experience at least once. Or maybe, I'll bet some people haven't had that experience. But, uh, but certainly I spent years doing that when I first started in radio. And um, I wasn't able to listen to that piece until maybe three years later. I just, I, I was so horrified by it. And I ended up being really surprised because number one, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It had some really funny moments. It had great sound, great interviews. It even had some really nice writing in it. Just occasional flashes of good writing. But it was also had, it was disjointed. There were no transitions that made any sense. Um, there were, it was, and these were things that I thought, oh, I'd love to play this for somebody, but I could never play it again for somebody because there were these really obvious flaws in it. And, and I thought, well, why did that happen? They were really simple things. And, and it took me several years of this happening over and over again before I realized that I was so afraid to listen, really, really listen to my own work once I'd put it together that I was afraid because I, I would think it was so horrible, I wouldn't be able to turn it in. And I think that, and of course I did not have an editor who would do that for me, who would help me do it. So I think that it was, I think that's a very common thing. I think a lot of people, as an editor, I have had work come in and I can tell that the person has not really listened to it themselves. They may think they did, 
They may have, you know, read it and gone over it with their acts, but they have not really, really listened. Um, so, years later, I have finally pretty much figured out how to set my own ego aside and become my own editor. And I think that that's an essential skill that people who work in this business have to have. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important in all, different kind, in all different fields, but in radio I think it's really essential that you just listen to yourself. And I think it takes some mental trickery to do it. I think that you have to adopt dual personas. You have to be the, the storyteller, the, the creative person who you are, but then you also have to find your inner editor, a person who will stand back and listen to it dispassionately. And so I have, with the help of a couple friends, come up with a few thought experiments, um, which for people with good eyesight, they can see them up there. But if not, I will read them. Okay, thought experiment number one. You're at a dinner party, and you have a great story to tell. On one side of you is an enthusiastic young person who is, uh, who really doesn't know very much about what you're talking about, who really doesn't have a lot of history, who doesn't have a lot of context to bring to the story, but is really receptive to hearing your story. On the other side, you have a very sophisticated person who knows quite a good deal about the story that you have to tell, who may even have been to whatever place you've been to, who has perhaps written on the subject themselves. You have to converse with both of those people. You have to keep both of them engaged and entertained. And you can't just turn to one person, focus on them exclusively for five minutes, and then turn to the other. You have to, all three of you, have to be engaged at the same time. So keep that in mind. Think about how you might do that. And, and, and keep that in mind at every step of your story. Um, and, and, and part of that is thinking about what, what does the listener stop, even stop as you're writing, as you're, as you're producing, and at each at each chunk of your story, think, is the listener getting this? What does the listener need to know in order to understand what I'm going to tell them next? Do they have everything that they need? How are they reacting to what I've just said? Are they a little mystified? Um, did they understand the reference I just made to uh, I don't know, a boat going down the river um, or to a, a historical, uh, to something that happened earlier. Um, just, you know, really just stop and ask yourself those questions at each step. Um, you know, don't wait until the end of the piece to try to do that. Uh, now, now, now we get to a harder thought experiment. And that is, think about three things 
that you love in your piece, that you just love, whether it's a juicy bit of tape or, or a sound um, or some really gorgeously crafted phrase, and imagine your story without it and imagine whether it will still work without it. And this is something that you think is just so wonderful, it makes the piece. We're always talking about things that make the piece. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily this stuff is gonna come out, although it might very well, um, but just try to imagine your piece without it and see if it still holds together. Um, I had a, early on, I had a, the sound of a bowling ball in a, in a story that I just was in love with the sound of the ball whooshing down the alley and hitting the pins. And, and it really just, it didn't fit in the story at all. And I kept it in and I kept it in and I kept it in. And, and finally I took it out. And years later, I still remember that bowling ball. It's, it's, it's like my rosebud, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then the, the, the corollary of that is imagine your piece ruined by one piece of overindulgence. And what is that? Look deep into yourself and, and think, what is that piece of overindulgence? Maybe there won't be one in there. You'll be lucky. <laughs> But be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. Um, all right. Thought experiment number three. I, and this is useful, I think. Just imagine your story at a different length. And, and how would you tell the story if you only had four minutes versus a half an hour? Or, or if you only have four minutes, imagine telling it at a half an hour. Um, how does the story change? And I'm not saying you have to do it completely, and I'm not saying either one is better than the other, the four-minute story or the half an hour, but just as a thought experiment, think about how the story, you know, are there essential core aspects of the story that stay in, and what are the things that, um, that don't stay? What are the things that you might add to it? Obviously, if you're on a really tight deadline, you're not going to do this thought experiment. Um, okay, and finally, the fourth, and I think the fourth is probably the most important, and, and that is to imagine that you are someone else, somebody who's very like you, somebody who's kind and thoughtful, <laughs> intelligent, play your story for that person. Maybe they even look like you. And imagine their response. Imagine the questions that they have that they're gonna ask you. Okay? There are probably dozens more thought experiments and if any of you have any, I'd love to hear them. Um, any tricks, mental tricks that you do. Um, I also wanna say that Feel free to edit this session as it's happening. Um, any questions, just, you know, questions or comments, just come forth with them. Is it ever helpful to imagine that instead of um, being someone else who's thoughtful, kind, and intelligent, you imagine playing it for someone who's 
Well, the only problem I can see with that is, is that, that you would be afraid to play it for that person. And <laughs> but, you know, if, if your ego can take that, then that's great. I mean, I think that a lot of people are phobic about, about playing their tape for editors because they, are, uh, because they don't have the confidence in themselves. I, the other thing that I think you need to ask yourself, uh, and, and this is, maybe this is a little too psychobabbly or, you know, psychotherapy, but I've, ask yourself, are, am I the kind of person who really loves, I'm delighted in my work, I love my stories, I always love my stories, but I'm always encountering people who don't really get me, you know, and then, you know, just, just sort of think about that. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to, to really say, oh, God, I love this story I just did. But, um, but if you're always encountering people, if your encounters with an editor are always kind of, I don't understand that, I don't understand that, you know, think. Maybe, maybe you need to adjust your framework a little bit, and maybe your editor needs to be a little more crotchety, your inner editor needs to be a little more crotchety and critical. On the other hand, if you ask yourself, am I the kind of person who's always disappointed with my work, um, who always feels like I've failed, um, you know, uh, both, to, to both of those those people, you need to try to be somebody in between, or at least to make your inner editor somebody in between. Um, I'm wondering if you can back up and explain, as you see it, what really is the role of an editor, what's the role mm -hmm. of a producer, and what's the role of a reporter? Okay. It seems like there are places where they overlap, and I'm curious to know how you yeah, they are, there are places where they overlap, and I'm, I like the overlap, but you're going to encounter editors who, who really don't see the overlap, and, and you're going to be working with a lot of them. And my friend Karen back there is, a, is, is someone who has produced and been edited many, many, many times by many different editors. She can maybe help out. Um, but how do you what what is what do you think an editor is? Am I putting you on the stop? What's what's their job? Their job is to make your story better than you would make it without them. Their their job is to be the interface between you and the show and the show's perception of their audience and to sell what you do to the show to make sure it airs, whatever it takes. So you're not wasting your time with theirs. Yeah. Now, my friend Joe Richmond, who I work with a lot said once that that an editor can't create your story for you if if you don't if you bring a mess to an editor yeah it would be nice and sometimes with really heroic efforts i have turned a sousier into a silk purse but but really but i i i would not stay an editor very long i wouldn't have spent all those years if i were constantly doing that because really what you want your editor to do for you is to, is to 
take what you have, this strong piece, and to help you hone it and polish it and make it lovely and do all of those final, make it lovely, make it, help you make it tighter than it is, to do all of those things. Um, and then, then you're both, you both should end up really happy. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of different, I know that some people in here, oh, well, how many people regularly work with an editor? Okay, fair number. Um, how many people just every once in a while get to work with an editor? Uh, okay, almost an equal number. Are there people here who just don't get to work with an editor, have never worked with an editor? Okay, all right. So obviously a lot of the things that I'm saying don't apply to somebody who does breaking news stories and is on a tight deadline every day. Um, I'm trying to address some of those concerns. At the same time, I'm trying to, to talk about the relationship between an editor and a producer who have you know, weeks or months to work crafting a story together. Uh, in between that is maybe uh, a feature story that you've been assigned or that you've pitched where you are not going to be bringing it in exactly on deadline. You're gonna maybe have a week to work together with the editor. You're maybe gonna have three or four, um, three or four or five edits. I, I'm wondering if you have some advice about, uh, when you're working on a long piece uh, with an editor, I, I've had some great editors and I've also had editors that seem like they wanna be a producer. And then, you, you know, if they're involved early on, it can throw you off the, your compass and then you lose sense of the whole thing before you even you know get it far enough along. So I'm wondering like at what point do you think it's worthwhile to engage with an editor and to work together, you know, right from the beginning or Well, I, I do think it's best right from the beginning to that an editor should help you um, uh, craft the idea to to here I some things uh, to to figure out not only what your story is and I often, at the very beginning, will ask people to write me a through line, write me three sentences about what the story is, no matter the length of the story, just write me three sentences. And sometimes I find that if, they, if I get two pages back instead of three sentences, I know there's gonna be trouble down the road. Um, but I, I certainly think that that an editor should help you do that. An editor should talk with you about how you're going, not only what the story is, how you're going to report it, you know, where you're gonna go, where, where you're gonna gather your, your material, um, uh, who you possibly might talk to, uh, what kind of sound opportunities there will be, and how much of it will be in the piece, um, whether there's going to be any other kind of archive tape, say, to just you know help you think that through ahead of time. Um, I think that that as the producer or reporter is going out and gathering tape, in the best of all possible worlds, you'll connect with the editor from time to time and tell them how it's going and 
and start in both of your minds crafting the story to some extent? Is there going to be, is it going to be a character-driven story? Is there going to be an emotional high point? Is there going to be, is it going to be a story where something happens that's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Or if you're finding that, that if it's going to be a story of ideas, you know, not a lot of scenes, um, not a lot of other kinds of tape, is how are you going to tell the story so that, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, there are plenty of great, great stories that really don't contain scenes and, um, and, and, a, and a lot of sort of what we think of as like rich, detailed tape. And if you ever listen to, like say, a longer piece by Margot Adler um, uh, at NPR, she's a master at doing story, idea stories that really don't contain a lot of scenes, although she does do that kind of story too, but she'll take an idea and she will structure the story with voices so that it proceeds just inexorably from one point to another and it pulls the listener along with you. And it actually is exciting to hear that. Um, what other? Uh, I think the editor can help you decide what tone the story is gonna have because um, that's something that's, that's often, you know, you need somebody else to, to talk about that. In other words, what is the relationship going to be between you, the narrator or producer, and the listener? Um, are, are you going to be sort of friendly? Are you going to be, you know, put yourself way, way, way in the background of the story? Um, is it going to be a first-person story? Those are all kinds of things that you should talk about with your editor as the story's proceeding. Not up front, wait until you've started to go out and cast your net and see what's out there. Um, then, uh, then I guess you're, you're at that point where you're back with all of your stuff and um, if you are being your own editor first, your inner editor, you really need to be honest and ask yourself, do I have all my reporting done? And, and that takes real honesty because you're tired and you really want to think that, you're tired and you're thinking, I'm not making money anymore on this piece. <laughs> you know, and if I have to do a few more interviews, I'm you know, really not gonna make any money. But you have to be honest with yourself and, and, uh, and if, you, if you don't have an editor who you can who you can discuss that with, you have to discuss it with yourself and make that decision. Um, one thing I think w to avoid for, for people who don't have an accessible editor, uh, somebody they can call with lots of questions, somebody, there are plenty of editors who will expect that they're gonna make an assignment, they're gonna hear from you when they say it's due, and in between, and then maybe you'll do two edits with them, and, and they really don't want to hear from you in between. Um, you're going to encounter those edi editors. You're going to have to live with them. And you know maybe they've got perfectly good reasons. Maybe they're really, really overworked. They're on daily shows. Um, but uh, that's where your inner editor comes in. Um, you're going to need to s sit down <clears throat> and, and pull that other persona out. Um, 
but now we can let's let's talk about you know sort of move from the your, being your own editor to the editor producer reporter relationship um, did, in, did I answer your question about who does what? You did with the editor. I'm interested to hear more about producer, reporter, and the overlap. Okay. Um, the producer is usually the, the producer and the reporter are usually the people who go out and do the interviews, gather the material, bring it back, and and shape it, decide on the structure and the shape, and what elements are going to be in the story with maybe occasional uh, chats to see if they're going in the right direction. Um, but often, if I'm working on a larger uh, project with someone, um, I maybe become more of a co-producer than an editor. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to play you. Um, I'm going to play you a, a piece, or part of a piece, not the whole piece, from um, uh, that I did with a, a producer named Kate Davidson, who now works at NPR. Um, Kate was a true independent producer. She found this story that she wanted to do. She got a small grant and went out and spent a year uh, finding people who had been involved in uh, something called the Indian Student Placement Program that was run by the Church of Latter-day Saints, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And she um, interviewed dozens of um, people, adults now, who had gone through the program this was a program that took uh, Indian children from reservations and brought them to live with Mormon foster families um, through the school year and then sent them back home during the summer to the reservation. But many children essentially spent years um, with these foster families. So she interviewed the, the people who had gone through the program, people, people in the foster families, and Mormon church officials who had administered the program or res were responsible for the program. It was a great idea. As far as I know, no one had ever done it before. She had masses of material and, um, and uh, we, we, we met each other and I agreed to be the editor and then she conveniently moved to Washington where I live and so we were able to spend um, a few months going through the material together and putting the story together. And I'm going to play a little bit of it, uh, mostly so that you can uh, uh, hear the sound of it. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Jennifer Ludden. Between 1954 and 1996, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sponsored a program for American Indian children. The Indian Student Placement Program had two aims, to provide Native children with an education and to help the Church fulfill one of its central prophecies. According to Church teachings, American Indians are descendants of the ancient House of Israel, and Church members have a responsibility to help bring them back to the Kingdom of God. 
Since the founding of the church, Mormon missionaries have sought to bring the word to Native people, and the placement program was part of this effort. Over the course of four decades, more than 20,000 children, mostly Navajo, were baptized and enrolled in the program. Producer Kate Davidson spent a year talking with people involved in the program. The story that emerged is a complicated one. It's about culture and families and what can happen when people from different worlds live in close proximity. Our story is called Saints and Indians. It's part of the series Worlds of Difference. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. Somehow it was always raining when we got on the bus. There was floods. So every year I always associate those rainy August days with having to leave home again. This is a true story about an educational program that annually sends several hundred Mormon Indian children from the reservations of Arizona and New Mexico to temporary foster homes in Utah where the children spend the school year as members of non-Indian Mormon families. My name is Rose Denetsosi, and I was 11 years old when I went on the placement program. My dad would tell us that the traditional way of life was going to eventually phase out. He says, I want you sitting in nice offices where it's air-conditioned and the summer and warm in the winter and and be receiving a paycheck for it. And we always left at night being the oldest boy in my family I always tried to put on a brave face and I swore I would never cry. That never happened. I I cried every time when I got in my seat, and uh, thankfully all the lights were off, so I just sat there. And then we rode the bus all night. When I woke up, we were on the freeways, and I just remember seeing all these bridges that crossed over, under, and Seeing it, it was like, how do people know which way they're going? How can you tell? And I felt like I was entering another world where people seemed to be hurrying everywhere. Arrival at the Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, marks the end of the first stage of their journey. And so in an area where just a hundred years ago, the cry, the Indians are coming, sent fear into the hearts of the settlers. Now the same cry brings joyful anticipation to families and homes throughout Utah. I'm Sharon Muirbrook. Our family settled here in North Ogden and settled along the Wasatch Front uh, when the pioneers came to Utah. And so we've always just had a love for the, for the Indians. My name is Dory Peters. I'm from originally from Red Valley, Arizona. They called my name. And I said, oh, no. My my foster mother came up and gave me a hug and blonde hair, you know, brown eyes. And their kids were just blonde hair. They were the whitest kids I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) 
was assigned the topic this morning concerning the Lamanites. The Lord has, through his prophets, predicted their destiny, that they would fall and that they would then be recovered. They used to tell us that we were a chosen race. They used to call us the Lamanites. But because we didn't listen to God, we were cursed and we, we came out with dark skins and black hair. Let me quote two or three scriptures in preface. Behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief. And it came to pass that I beheld that after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark, loathsome, and a filthy people, full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Again... My name is Clarence R. Bishop. I was director of the Indian Placement Program. You've heard about our Book of Mormon. Our Book of Mormon talks about the day of the Lamanite, when the church would make a special effort to build and reclaim a fallen people. And some people will say, well, fallen from what? I mean, they aren't fallen. They have their own culture. They have their own this. They have their own that. But according to the Book of Mormon, they originally had the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would tell us, now it's your job to go home and to teach your family about the church and to help them understand it so they can... They didn't say so they can be saved so that they can blossom like the rose too. My name is Laura Brown. I came from a family of one older brother, six younger, and one younger sister. And I remember herding sheep and herding cattle for my grandmother. And I remember a lot of drinking on my dad's part and physical abuse because of that. Later on, my mother told us that when she heard of the placement program, she saw a way out for her children. My husband is he's drinking a lot. He didn't think about those kids. I do. I wanted to raise good. That's why. Growing up, we would always watch white people from a distance. And I always was kind of curious and see how do they live. Do they live like us? No, obviously they don't, <laughs> which I found out. The first thing I noticed was the smell. Everything smelled different. I mean, I miss the the cedar of the reservation, the sage and the rain and the, the smell of my grandfather doing his ceremonies and so forth. And in the white man's world, it was everything was, it smelled like plastic. It smelled like uh, metal. I was amazed at their beautiful home, and their yard was just beautiful, and they had a pomegranate tree and uh, grapes and flowers and a lawn, and <laughs> it was just beautiful to me. I shared a room with my foster sister, Debbie. I think we vacuumed every day or every other day, and 
it always seemed like, I don't understand why we have to vacuum. There's no dirt on the floor. <laughs> and I remember being aware of all the things that they did that we didn't do. And all the things that they did that I liked. How they said family prayer together before they went to bed. And everybody got a hug and kissed each other goodnight. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do when I have a family. He seemed to not have a very high esteem. Um, in fact, just to put it kind of bluntly, Dory didn't seem to even like his culture his, to be an Indian. Um, when we'd have the Order of the Arrow come and do the dances, the Indian dances and things like that, he would go in the other room. He didn't even want to be around it. Or we'd see other Indians and he would turn and go the other way. I think when I was growing up, I I, I didn't want to be um, Navajo. I wasn't, you know, I would. they would say, you know, are you Indian? i say no. And I would just deny it because I didn't want to get into the situation where I had to explain myself. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to my friends just say that he's just Dory, you know. He's just, that's who he is. He's not, you know, white. He's not black. He's not Indian. He's just my friend. And that's all I wanted to be. Lelo, lelo, lelo. Lelo, lelo, lelo. Lelo. It takes a real thick skin in order to be a person of color and then also to have to live in two worlds. At five years old, I was responsible for taking the horses to the water. And I rode those horses bareback. That was my job. So I had a sense of, uh, a great sense of responsibility for, for the things I do. And then I had to go to placement. And I went to a place where everything that I, that I had was not acknowledged, was taken for granted. And nothing of value that I had and did was, was worth anything to them. There was also constant conflict with the beliefs, just the whole concept of the church, learning to understand that. I guess each student had different experiences, but my experience was that before we left every year to come home, they would tell us, make sure you go to church, don't go to any ceremonies like squaw dances, don't have any ceremonies. But my family always had a beauty way ceremony for each of us. It was to bless our minds and to make us strong so that we wouldn't have any problems with learning. When we used to go back, they would ask us, did you have any ceremonies? And I would have to say no. So I felt like I was violating both. I wasn't being true to my culture and I wasn't being honest with the other culture. What is culture? And when is it good and when is it bad? And what's sacred about it? My grandmother 
came from Denmark. She gave up her complete culture to come to America and be a member of the church. Is that wrong? Is that bad? Which culture did these children give up? Did they give up their original culture where they had the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life? Or did they give up another culture that they came to when they left the gospel of Jesus Christ? I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And all the teachings that it has, I firmly believe. I always felt at the beginning that, that I was not as good as white people, but as I grew up and from the things I learned from the placement and also from the things I learned from church, I finally got to the point where I didn't feel that way anymore. And I see all those positive things with my children. They can function in an Anglo world as well as the native world. And they're not afraid of either one. My name is Floyd Nelson. The church uh, has been a tremendous blessing for me. I've uh, come to understand who I am as a Native American through the Book of Mormon. Yes, we have a cursed skin to, to identify who we are, but I don't look at it as a curse. I look at it as a blessing. The Book of Mormon teaches us that the Native Americans will rise, rise up in power again. They will become a people who will finally figure out who their God is. Sometimes, even now, sometimes I kind of slip back into that, the guilt that, that I used to feel, even though I don't go to church anymore. Sometimes I have flashbacks to, to how it used to feel when, when I go through a ceremony, and of course it's always a relief to know that I'm an adult and I don't have to carry that in at all. We so much wanted Dory to keep his culture strong. We felt like that was very important. We never wanted to take any of that from him. In fact, when he started dating, we said, date Indian girls. You need to keep your lines pure and clean and, you know, keep that Navajo um, line pure, you know. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he, he married a white girl, so, you know. And they have beautiful children who just, you know, love them to death. But we really wanted, you know, tried to encourage him to, to date Indian girls. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. I wake up feeling empty that something supposed to have been there but wasn't there was denied me or taken away it's just a feeling of something missing that I bonded with more with people that weren't of my family and they're not in my life anymore and they they, they haven't been in my life for for many years and one of the secret desires that's always been in my heart is that I would see my foster brothers or my foster sisters 
there at the door of my parents' place because I thought they only knew maybe less than half of who I really was. But it hasn't happened to this day. Saints and Indians was produced by Kate Davidson and edited by Deborah George. Worlds of Difference is a project of Homelands Productions. For photos and more information, you can visit our website at npr.org. Okay, I apologize. I was only going to play a little bit of it. <laughs> and then and then I just I just I could listen to it, you know, many times. I obviously have. Um, but I also wanted you all to hear all of the contradiction and the back and forth and the nuance uh, in the piece. Um, uh, obviously, you know, there, there are so many different points of view in this piece. There are the, there are the, the foster families and the Mormon officials there. Um, and then, and then there are the Indian, you know, children and now adults, who have, who have very differing opinions themselves about the value of the program and what it meant in their lives. And within each of the people that we interviewed, they had their own. They were all very ambivalent about the experience themselves. So. Um, you know, how do you represent that truthfully? I mean, that's always the essential question of a documentary. How do you, in whatever amount of time you have, whether, you know, it's 17 minutes or, or an hour, um, how do you present the truth at, as best as you possibly can? And and, and that go also goes to the heart of the producer-editor relationship because I think between the two of us, we arrived at the best truth we possibly could. Um, and and, and one, one important thing was that Kate had spent a year talking to these people, making relationships with them. Uh, not only the, the people who went through the program as, as, as Indians, but with the, the foster families and with the, you know, and, and even with the Mormon officials, I mean, getting to know them. And, and so Kate, you know, had a very intimate sense of who these people were. But on the other hand, she also had um, a really um, developed sense of, you know, not wanting to hurt anyone, um, not wanting, you know, uh, the, the responsibility to be true to what everybody said as you're pulling, you know, tiny little chunks of long, long, long conversations, but also always in the back, you know, I think for producers, it's always in the back of your mind. What are they, how are these people going to feel when they hear this? Whereas I have never met these people. And I formed my own relationship with the sound of their voices by listening to their interviews, but I didn't have that strong protective feeling. Um, I, and, and so we would have these, you know, these, these discussions. Well, you know, well, Claude said that, but I'm not sure if that's what he really meant. 
And, and I would say, but that's what he said. And so I really think we can use it um, because he didn't say anything to contradict it. Um, although there were parts where, where in, in one case, we went back to interview one of the women, or Kate went back to interview her, or I think did a tape sync with her. And just to add on one line, and that was um, when um, the woman Rose talks about uh, going home and, and doing the beauty way ceremonies. Um, when, when she tells us that the people in the placement program said, don't, don't do any ceremonies when you go home, uh, we, we couldn't verify that. And we, we couldn't verify that it was a, um, um, that it was a tenet of the program that that kids weren't supposed to do that. So we appended one line where Rose says, "I guess everybody had different experiences." You know, the best the best that we could possibly do. We didn't have anybody contradicting it. We didn't have, you know, it was Rose's story. It really happened to her. Um, so so those are the kinds of. There were lots of ethical discussions. And, and one of the roles of an editor is to be a sort of rabbi, you know, somebody that, that you can take these ethical discussions to. And I think that it's <clears throat> better to take them to your editor. Some people take them. Some people, you know, find a person in their life who acts as that. But I think it's really better to do it with the editor than to do it with a friend. And I would say you certainly don't really, if you can avoid it, you don't want to do it with your husband or your wife. Hello, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. This American life on my The show about all the unseen. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, you were working for NPR at the time, or you were independent? I was independent. I was independent at the time, but I said, I know we can get this on NPR. And then we also, uh, and then, and I said, and I know that we can fit it into worlds of difference. So, Which came first, NPR or Homelands? Uh, uh, went to Homelands first and then did the sh a shorter version for Worlds of Difference. So if we're lucky, we can find somebody like you who's a Yenta who can get it on NPR. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's what I do sometimes, yeah. Yeah. What were some of the ethical dilemmas, examples that you're facing in this case? Um, well, aside from... from um, you know, cutting down these very long interviews and being truthful to what people were groping with. You know, some people had blocked a lot of this stuff out of their minds for years. Um, and some people were truly, th there's a long speech at the end, the, the man at the end who says, you know, the thing about August at the beginning and the end. Well, what we boiled down that couple minutes where he's talking about um, I felt that they never knew who I was um, he's actually in the entire extended portion of that interview he's actually talking about both his native family and his foster family and he feels um, uh, <clears throat> he feels he's not a part of either one now it was a big, complicated thought, and we just couldn't do it, so we chose one part of it. But it was hard. It was, it was hard to do. Uh, and then there were also lots of little ethical uh, and uh, sort of production dilemmas about how to use the sound, how do you, how, you know, we've got ambient sound in there um, that obviously was recorded at a different point. Um, we, the sound of the sheep bells, um, we did get sheep bells from that area. Uh, the sound of the bus at the beginning obviously was not a bus that was taking kids away to, hmm? You can do that, it's okay. It just helped it create the image in your mind. Well, you know, but, but we also needed to be able to answer editors at NPR who, who sometimes are very, I think, who don't understand the, the conventions of the documentary because they're news people. So, so the sound of the bus was the sound of a bus uh, that was recorded in LA near where one of the people lives today. Does that make a difference? I, you know, to, to, to us it made somewhat of a difference that it wasn't a New York City bus. Wow. Go ahead. I think this really works in the piece because all the voices are so rich and distinct. But, you know, and I, you do identify them at different points. But 
I'm, I'm wondering if you had discussions about that because the piece is mostly voices and you know everybody's got a very distinct story and they kind of come in and out and I feel like they're all held in balance but I'm wondering if you wrestled with that or if there were discussions about like how often to ID them yeah and just how to deal with all the voices without and the separate stories coming in at different points yeah yeah um, well really the, they only identify themselves once uh, when they first speak and one man is unidentified because he did not want us to use his English name and he also didn't want us to use his Navajo name. So, and he was one of our main speakers and he's unidentified. And, but I, I think it's okay. I think that without knowing his name, he's got a great voice. You, you sort of form a picture of who this man is as it's going along. Did you uh, make, did this air before NPR changed their rules about anonymous sources and in the wake of the, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, oh, I'm not sure when, when this, this aired. You know, uh, I don't know, because they're always changing the rules. Um, and, uh, and this aired on the weekend show and no one ever asked us and I think when they listened to it they probably never, uh, I certainly didn't flag for them, oh there's a person in here, um, you know, who's, who's whose name you don't get. As, I mean, I've tried to explain to editors at NPR, show editors I'm talking about, and, you know, and managing editors, you know, as you go up the, the food chain there, that, cause especially because some of them are from print, and, and, and I think it's very important in print that you identify, you know, everyone in a piece. Um, but in the radio, I mean, we, we, I mean, how likely is it that we went out and hired an actor to be this person? I mean, it's just, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot more leeway in radio than there is in, in print journalism. Go ahead. How did you resolve the question about his final thought there? Because it seems like while it remains true because he's speaking about one half of a true thing, if your goal is to represent the core truth of his experience, you're really amputating a crucial yeah. element. Right. How did you, how did you, what were those discussions? Well, part of it was, oh, we wished that the whole piece was just about him because he was so good and he had so much to say, and it could have been. Um, but then on the other hand, everybody's experience was slightly different, and we had to leave out people who had had really bad experiences. Um, we left out someone who was so filled with anger, um, and we would have included her, except that she was also uh, very rhetorical, and you know, was, wasn't personal in her anger, was, you know, talk, talked in terms of, you know, cultural imperialism and things like that. I mean, it just didn't fit in the piece. Um, so. And you would have had to have some, something to balance that out too, right? Yeah, yeah. In your discussions with Kate, who came down on what side with that final? You know, I don't think, I think it was just a long, long process of trying to edit it in different ways you know, trying to edit it so that both sides stayed in, um, 
wondering whether we should take it out altogether because we couldn't get it in. It, it, it was just a long, and it, talking, just talking. The editor-producer relationship, just talking it out until we arrive at something that you mutually can live with. Of course, it's not on deadline, we, you know. I mean, it was on deadline, we did have a deadline, but, but, but we also had the time to have those discussions. The, the sermon, uh, the sermon actually is an old sermon that is from their archives, and and they gave permission. Yeah. How do you not get oversaturated with the material yeah. for a year? And can you talk about um, the editor's role? And yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's the other thing is that that Kate had lived with it for a, a whole lot longer than I did, and so I was able to to listen and to, to also look at the logs and, and, and sort of see things that, that she, you know, when you live with something for a long time, you, you decide early on, oh, I'm not gonna be using that, but I could sort of see, oh, well, that's exactly what we need to put in. So, so, so in, in that case, the, the different relationship to the material also helped. Yeah, I think there are dangers. I mean, I think it's it's. I th I think your friends and your your spouses will will be more likely to say, "Oh, that's great," um, but uh, and and they also don't have the trained ear. They don't have the experience to know how people listen to the radio. But in a pinch, yes, you use you use someone. Um, just if you then go to an editor. Afterwards, um, I, the, the one thing as an editor that I cannot abide is when someone, when I'll, when I'll critique something and say that's not working, and they'll say, my wife thought it was great. <laughs> and then just, I blow up at that. I just can't, you know. <laughs> well, then have your wife finish it. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you listen to the raw tape? Yeah, I often, do. I do if there's enough time, yeah. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's really good to go back to the raw tape. Okay. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like a lot of NPR editors would have time. No, no, that's very true. They wouldn't. They wouldn't, although I have, as an NPR editor, um, done it. Especially if we're really, really stuck. I'll say, are you sure? You sure you don't have something, you know, that we, you know, you know, l let me listen to it, and and I'll often find something. I'm assuming that with this piece, you did a lot of listening to mixes and kind of ground truth, and you can't see how this piece is working with just the script. Right? I mean, you guys probably listened to incarnations. Right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There was a, a lot of rearranging, and and one of the biggest problems, the thing that took us the longest with the piece in, is. I don't know if any of you noticed that there's a hole in the story. Um, in the original interviews that Kate did, there were a, 
there were a lot of questions and a lot of people talking about the beginning, how they were chosen, the, first, the trip, how they first met their families. There's a lot of talk about how they feel years later. There's a, there are a lot of stories about their first impressions, but then there are years in between that there wasn't much material on. Um, a lot of, I mean, how, what was it like at school? What was, you know, what was it like, you know, over an extended period of time, what was it like experiencing this program? That was missing. And, and it seemed like an insurmountable problem for a while, and we did the best we could with taking some of the first impression stories and just taking the word first out of it, you know, so that, so that you get some sense of time passing, of there being a middle. Going back to kind of the, the genesis of this uh, session, how do you juggle more than one editor? And I don't have this problem now, but in the past, um, as a print reporter, I had two people to report to and... For one story? Yes. Yeah, that's not... Really hard to please. It, oh, it is. It really <laughs> is. So... It really is. Um, I, I, I can only say that you should express that to them. Um, because, it, yeah, it can, it can make it hell. I mean, when there's a pile-on of editors, yeah, all telling you what to do. And then there's the editors who change their minds who one day tell you to do one thing and you bring it to them and then, and then they say, hmm, you know, um, or they don't even remember that they told you to do that <laughs> and tell you to change it back, yeah. Any tips on dealing with an editor that can be supportive kind of to a fault, where they, where they don't push you in, like, I'm thinking specifically as a, if you're working on a story and you as the uh, as producer, is, you're trying to find the right voice, you're waiting for that right, something hasn't quite jumped, but you're maybe waiting too long and you can actually should move it along. Right. And the, editor, and the editor is telling you, oh, it's okay, what you've got? Yeah, mostly yeah. because I'm, I'm an independent, so they're not looking at a big gaping hole in their schedule. Well, I think if you're clear to them, why? Right. And as an independent, ultimately, it's up to you. I just find sometimes I can sit with stuff too long and not get it out. Well, that's okay. Well, yeah. well, if an editor tells you, I mean, the be the most the, uh, the the most important thing with an editor is to express yourself clearly. If an editor says something to you that you don't understand say, I didn't understand that, can you explain that to me again? Ex explain that to me in a different way. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you need to respect them, they need to respect you, the relationship can be both personal and, and it can get nasty, you know, on a dime, and, and you just don't want that to happen, you want to perceive uh, trouble spots ahead of time and, and try to, you know, ratchet down any emotion that's, you know, that's going to happen. 
Um, Along those lines, I'm wondering if you could talk about some other things that, as an editor, and a, you know, a good editor and a sensitive editor, as everyone says, you know, how you, some things that drive you crazy, you know, when um, you're dealing with someone who's working on a story, and, you know, what we as producers could do to help right. the relationship. Um, I say never blow a deadline. Never, never, never. And I mean, if you have to come up with something, come up with something. Just don't say, can I push it back a day? Because an editor's schedule is usually like a house of cards, and if one thing falls out, then, then they're left with you know, scrambling to fill it. So just don't do it. Um, don't say, I mean, I don't mind if it's a little rough, the script that comes in, but don't say, oh, and here, I'm, 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 I'm going to say something like this. You know, don't do that. Just have something there, even if you decide that you're going to change it later. Um, what else? Give me a good formatted script that I can read. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I'll get, I'll, you know, you know, some people will write all in caps, and some, you know, and I have a hard time reading that. Some people won't put actuality or or narrator, and I'll and I'll have a hard time sorting it out. Some people will send me a script with no line breaks. I mean, just you know, do do, you know, find out what whatever the whatever a good script looks like. Um, for your news organization or for the one that you're working with. You know, you can ask to see an example of a script, how they like a script. Um, when you are, when, when you've played your tape and gone through the piece with an editor, don't start talking first. Don't start saying, well, you know, the, the, I do know what's wrong with this, and they're like, just don't. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I have one editor who I work with, uh, he has only one rule, don't ever call me when you're angry. Not necessarily at him wow. or, or at, about a story, something, something, and it is good because it, 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 it keeps a certain amount of tension completely out of our relationship. Wow. I don't know if everybody can handle that. <laughs> but it, I like that. Yeah. When you're working as a producer, um, how abstract or esoteric do your conversations get about the importance of a story? Or the, the how, how what? How? Sort of esoteric, like getting away from the content that you're actually editing and talking about what you want the story to do. Oh, yeah, sure. That's an important, yeah. I love talking about that. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk about anything? You mean what, what you want the per what a f what you want the person to do, what you want the story to do in terms of, of sounding like? No, like what you want the story to actually say beyond the content, you know what I'm saying? No. So like in this story, there's this subtext or this, this other element, which is, you know, ethnicity and ethnic relationships. And right, right. Things like that. Do you right. have those conversations with the producer? Yeah, yeah, I think so, sure. And, and also because we were, 
we were pitching it to Worlds of Difference, and it had to, f and we had to make a rationale for how it fit into their series, which was mostly about globalization and the effects of globalization. Um, but uh, you know, so so there was one. I don't know if you know. There was one complicated sentence in the intro um, that was for Worlds of Difference. <laughs> there have been a couple times when I've been lucky enough to work with an editor where there's a point that we really disagree on and I feel like it's, there, it's more nuanced and I want to talk about the nuance and oftentimes the editor will come to understand what I'm saying mm -hmm. but then I'm left with the choice of whether or not that nuance is important enough to me and often what I've done is said you know, I want to, because I'm new at this, I want to please that editor. And so I often have let it go. And I guess as an editor, I'm interested in, you know, what, what would your take on that be? If you get into those kinds of situations where you're working with someone and, and there's a point that, to you, it doesn't necessarily seem that important, but to the, the producer, mm -hmm. it, it does. Mm -hmm. you, you know, how, what would you want to see the producer doing with that? Well, I'm not sure if I know exactly what you mean. I do know that sometimes people try to cram too many ideas into a single story. And, and, and it's my job to persuade them that the story is better if you take out some of those ideas, because then you can strengthen the other ideas. Yeah, I, th I think it's often a language thing, like where there's something that's happened and in our um, in, in a kind of, maybe it's a national versus regional thing, in a national way that it's talked about, certain words are used, but they're not exactly accurate, and they, by using those words, you participate in telling a story that isn't really what you believe to be the truth, hmm. um, but it's much more pithy and concise, and a national audience will know what you're talking about. You mean you're, you're fitting your story into a framework? Yeah, but that, by fitting it into that framework, in a way you're participating in telling a truth. Right, or, right. Does that make more sense? Oh, it does. It happens all the time, I think, that, that you know, you can fall into the, there, there's, a, there's a structure. There's a, such and such is happening. Some people believe this. Some people believe this. This is what's going to happen next. And, and of course, it assumes that there are two views, um, when most of the time on the ground, wherever the story is, there are many more than two views. Yeah, so. Um, you, can, you can, you know, plead for more time. Um, you can try to sum up some of that nuance in a graceful way so that it doesn't sort of just stick out in the story. Um, you could even, you know, put it in your, your <coughs> final paragraph. Um, you know, give a nod to it, if nothing else. Make it a web extra. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, you can always make web extras now. Those are, yeah. <laughs> Good. When you're your own editor, do you consciously separate what activity you're participating in so you know when you're getting the editor, when you're getting the Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I, um, yeah, I think it's just sort of like a mental trick that I've developed over the years. Um, but even as a producer, I do this thing where I, I'll fall in love 
with a person in my story. You know, I'll think they're just the greatest person in the world, and and um, uh, and then I'll start to, and then I'll flip it around, and and I'll see all of the flaws in what they said, and I don't think this person is really being honest with me, and you know, they're 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 the worst person in the this. You know, I don't like this person at all. And, and at some point, usually by the end of the story, I arrive at a, some kind of synthesis where, you know, I realize this is, this is the person who he is and I don't have to think he's a hero and I don't have to think he's a villain. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess just, you know, find, build a relationship with an editor, build a relationship of trust. Um, the best thing in the world is to find somebody with a kind of a common sensibility. Um, and it sounds like you've got somebody like that. Um, so that you both have, I think one of the most important things that you can both have is a sense of rightness. Like, ah, that works. The story's finished now. It's like a painting. When does a painter know when the story's finished? You have a sense of rightness. Um, you know, and when you, when you and your editor can start speaking in shorthand, then you know you've built a successful relationship. But you would agree it's good that, as an editor, you probably prefer a reporter who really can articulate, like, this point that maybe the editor's missing, like, I have to have this tape, like, this makes a story, or is it, does that become nagging? Do you know what I mean? Is there, like, how much can a reporter fight for a piece of tape and you come back and say, no, no, honestly, um, if I've got the time, I'll, I'll arm wrestle till the ground for hours. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, and I really, and, and often if I think that something really doesn't work that well, but I know that the reporter producer is passionately attached to it, I'll say, sure, go ahead. You know, I disagree with you, but go ahead. It's important to you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.